Today's reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that, and I quote, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon. Back in England, I had a friend uh, called Dougie. Dougie had had what we would say was a hard life. He'd left school early, not very academically inclined. He got into a lot of trouble. He'd uh, been uh, involved in drugs, in gangs. He'd been in prison. But he was wonderfully saved when he met Jesus. And he became the most passionate evangelist. Uh, he would, um, he'd written a little, uh, I suppose, uh, what would you call it, a testimony, a little booklet of his life story that he photocopied. And he would give it to anybody who would take one. And everyone he met, everywhere, all the time, he would tell them about Jesus and what it meant to uh, follow Jesus, what, how his life had been transformed by Jesus. I remember on one occasion, I went to visit him in his uh, apartment, and uh, just as we were going into the apartment block, there was a man who was tending the garden outside. And as we went in the doors, Dougie turned to me and he apologized to me that he hadn't yet led this man to faith in Jesus. 
He'd been talking to him about Jesus, it's just that this man hadn't actually made a profession of faith yet, and he was apologizing for that. That was the kind of guy uh, that Dougie was. The church, of course, didn't really know what to do with him, the Baptist church that uh, we were both a part of, and they decided that they would do, well, what they always do when they find somebody who's enthusiastic in their faith, that they'd send him to Bible college. So they sent Dougie off to Bible college, and a few months later, Dougie came back from Bible college. It just wasn't the right fit for him. He wasn't at all academically inclined. He didn't want to write papers about Jesus. He wanted to tell people about Jesus. And uh, I wonder if maybe they should have instead uh, just supported him in that ministry and perhaps put somebody alongside him who could have uh, discussed with him some of the, the issues of faith and issues of scriptural interpretation and the like. But Dougie's passion was open-air preaching, particularly. Uh, in the center of Newcastle, there's a, a monument, a huge, uh, uh, tall uh, column with a, with a statue on top, rather like Nelson's column in London, except the statue on top of this column is Earl Grey. Uh, you've no doubt heard of the T named for him. And at the bottom of Earl Grey's monument, there's a large uh, raised area. And every week, Dougie would take his microphone and his little amplifier, and he'd set it up, and he would preach to absolutely anyone who would listen as they passed by in the center of the city. It's a very uh, busy area. I guess it would be like uh, preaching from the steps of the art gallery, but probably busier. And uh, if you were passing by, you had to watch out, because if he saw you in the crowd and he knew you were a Christian, he would say, oh, and there's my friend Anthony. He'll come up and he'll tell you that what I'm telling you about Jesus is true. And before you knew it, he'd thrust a microphone into your hand, and you were there telling people uh, about Jesus as well. Dougie was a wonderful man to know. He was full of enthusiasm for the good news of Jesus. And he would regularly see people come to faith. I think, though, that if that's the picture that comes to our minds when we think of evangelism, many of us might be rather intimidated by that. The book of Acts begins with a promise, not a command. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As we've read the book of Acts, we've seen that promise being fulfilled. The Spirit has been poured out on the small group of Jesus' followers in Jerusalem and more and more people have been added to their number as they've encountered the message about Jesus through the witness of the disciples and as they've put their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins. The church has swelled to thousands. And in the passage that we read last Sunday, their witness in Jerusalem has spilled out over into the surrounding towns and villages of Judea. Soon, as persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem, the believers are going to be scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then as we reach chapter 9 and beyond in Luke's account, the witness of these believers will begin to radiate out to Ethiopia, Syria, 
Cyprus, Turkey, Macedonia, Greece, and a thousand other places. But before we get there, we have some lessons we can learn about being Jesus' witnesses. So if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading at verse 17. Acts chapter 5, we're going to begin at verse 17. Uh, More and more men and women have believed in the Lord and are being added to the church. People are bringing the sick into the streets as the apostles pass by. The crowds are gathering from towns around Jerusalem. And then Acts 17. Then uh, Acts 5.17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they'd been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Brief word of prayer. Lord, as we look at this passage about the way that you were witnessed to by the earliest church, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to receive from you the word that you have for each of us today and that we would surrender our wills to you to do what you would will for us. Lord, speak only those, let my lips speak only those words that you want spoken, and no words that you don't. Lord, let us encounter you as we read your word together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Persecution is increasing. In chapter 3, it was Peter and John who were arrested. Now it is all the leaders of this new movement who are put in prison. But that night, something extraordinary happens. The prison doors are opened and they are led out by an angel of the Lord. God frees them. And God is not simply freeing them for their own comfort. He frees them for a purpose. Verse 20, go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people about this new life. God is not freeing them for their own comfort. 
but for a purpose. And we too have been freed for a purpose. We have been freed from sin, not only for our own comfort and well-being, but also so that we can be his witnesses. The NIV uses the phrase, this new life. That's the message the apostles have to tell others. One New Testament commentator, Ben Witherington, says, life was a synonym for salvation, including acts of rescue such as this one. As the angel of the Lord opens the door to their jail and sets them free, an act of salvation in itself, he says, tell the people all the words of this salvation life. That's what a witness does. They share what they have seen and heard, the salvation they have experienced, the rescue you personally have experienced is what you're called to share. You don't have to have an answer to every question others may have about the Christian faith. You don't have to convict anyone else of their sin. That's the task of the Holy Spirit. You just have to say what Jesus has done for you. Now, for the apostles, they are commanded to preach in the temple courts, and this means two things. First, it means that they're called to speak in public, not just to retreat to houses, which we know the Jerusalem church was already using extensively. Obviously, they can teach and preach there also, but their call is to public proclamation of the gospel. In the last verse of our passage today, verse 42, we're told day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, the word that's used there is the word from which we today get the word evangelism, to bring good news. And this is the first time that this word is ever used of the church. The first time that our task as the church is described as to bring good news. And that word that's used there is not a religious one. It's the common term for the public announcement of news. Uh, the announcement of a wedding, for example, or the declaration of a military victory, or an imperial proclamation. The gospel is the public proclamation of public news. Increasingly, I think, in our lifetimes, society has tried to cast religion as a private matter. Oh, it's okay for you to believe that. Just don't try to tell others what they should believe. But God has called us to witness to public news, good news for everyone. And Peter will say it in a moment, we must obey God rather than human beings. And so uh, the apostles obey without hesitation. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they'd been told and began to teach the people. You'll remember that their practice had been to go up to the temple at 3 p.m., the hour of prayer. But from now on, they're going to be sharing their message publicly all day. And this leads us to the second thing that preaching in the temple courts means. As the apostles are beginning to teach the people in the temple courts, less than half a kilometer away from them, the Sanhedrin are gathering. 
the Jewish ruling council and the temple authorities. And Luke is pointing to the contrast between those who are proclaiming life in the temple courts and those who are trying to silence that proclamation, those who very soon will be plotting death. The temple is the province of the Sanhedrin and of the high priest. And yet this ragtag group of poorly educated, mostly former fishermen are taking over from them as Israel's teachers. Listen, you may not feel equipped to respond to the philosophers and atheists in positions of power and influence in this world today. But you have something that they do not, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Don't, please don't underestimate the power of God as you witness to other people. In the temple, there is a spiritual conflict going on between those who see themselves as the leaders of God's people, but who are actually the murderers of God's Messiah, and those who are the leaders of God's people, who are the witnesses of God's Messiah, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the public proclamation of the good news of Jesus leads to public and spiritual opposition. So let's read on. I'm going to begin again at verse 27. Acts 5, verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict instructions not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy 
of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Let me comment on this last verse before we go back and look at the rest of the passage. Temple and house, uh, teaching and proclaiming. The point that Luke is making is that the witness of the apostles never stops. Whether it's in a public setting or in a private one, whether it is preaching or just in conversation. One of the concerns that I have about witnessing is that people write themselves off as witnesses because they have a particular setting and a particular style of witness in mind when they think about evangelism. Becky Pippett says, most Christians think of evangelism as being for people who are good enough to do it well or obnoxious enough to do it anyway. Ordinary people can't be involved. But remember, it's a promise. We are his witnesses. If we've seen and heard the risen Jesus, we have what we need. And we don't need to be anyone but ourselves. We are exactly the witnesses Jesus needs in the context that he's put us. Jesus doesn't say, here is the task. Now become something that you're not and do it. No. We can trust Jesus' promise that we will be his witnesses. In other words, we will be all the evidence that those around us need in order to find him. Jesus says, be yourself and share your faith in the way I made you, I believe. Remember, the Lord put us into circle of family and friends, and those people relate to us as we are. We don't need to be different to relate to people we already relate to. No one else could move in and take over the relationships that you already have. And when it comes to being a witness, we're all different. Some of us have a, a confrontational style. You see this, for example, in Peter in Acts chapter 2 as he, he boldly declares the word of God publicly. Those who have a confrontational style are, are confident, assertive, they're direct, they get to the point. Many evangelists have that kind of style. People like J. John, but also people like Billy Graham. Billy Graham shows you that you don't have to be harsh to have that confrontational style. Others have what I would call an intellectual style. So, for example, Paul in Acts chapter 17 in Athens, he's reasoning in the synagogue and he's debating the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. People who have an intellectual style tend to be inquisitive, analytical, logical, the kind of people who love to deal in questions and love to have discussions. People like uh, Josh McDowell, uh, Michael Green, John Stott, those kinds of people. And because society is secularizing, people have a lot of intellectual roadblocks on the way to being open to the gospel message. So this style is really an important one. Some people have what I would call a testimonial style. We would see that, for example, in John chapter 9, when the, the blind man says, 
Uh, One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. He simply tells his story about Jesus. And there are many famous stories, uh, Corrie ten Boom, uh, Joni Erickson Tada, many others that you've heard of who tell their story. I think a lot of people have this style of witness, but they're not confident to share their story with others because they don't think that their story is dramatic enough. They weren't delivered from being a teenage drug dealer. But honestly, it doesn't matter if you don't think your story is so spectacular. In fact, if that's the case for you, you'll probably relate better to most people because most people are not teenage drug dealers. Then there's people who have what I would call an interpersonal style. Matthew, for example, uh, in Luke chapter 5, he has this large group of friends who are all tax collectors. People who have this style have a warm personality, they're outgoing, they're conversational. You just love to make new friends. Becky Pippett would be an example of that. And Nicky Gumbel, who was the author of the Alpha Course as well, this is his style. I think if this is you, and it is for a lot of people, you, you should be aware of one particular danger, and that is the desire to keep the friendship rather than make waves by introducing something awkward like faith in Jesus. And then related to that style, I think, is uh, what I would call an invitational style. Some of us have an invitational style of witness. So, for example, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. People who have this invitational style are hospitable, relational. They have ever-broadening circles of relationships, and they're persuasive. Uh, My favorite uh, example of someone in this style is uh, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham. There are many stories of times when she was in shops or in the hairdressers before an evangelistic crusade that Billy Graham was speaking at, and she would say to people, come with me to hear my husband, and they'd have no idea that it was Billy Graham that they were going to go and see. Styles tend to flourish where there's an opportunity. And this is especially true, I think, of this invitational style. You need to partner with others, with Alpha Course or with an evangelistic uh, sermon in church. And then uh, lastly, uh, I mean, there are many other styles, but the last one I want to give you today is what I would call a serving style. We're going to come to the story of Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. The serving style is the the kind of person who's others-centered. You see needs that other people don't. You're humble, patient. This is a a slow style, but because it's slow, in some ways it reaches the hardest to reach people, just slowly chipping away and chipping away over time. A good example of this would be the former president, Jimmy Carter, who built all of those houses with Habitat for Humanity. Now, I hope that that's encouraging to you. You don't have to be someone you are not. You're a witness as you are. Although they're not well-educated, although they're quite different from one another, although they're sometimes in the public setting of the temple and sometimes in people's homes, because they have been with Jesus, particularly after his resurrection, the apostles are exactly the witnesses that Jesus wants. And the same is true of us. Despite our differences, 
despite our different contexts. Okay, let's return to verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Well, the conversation that ensues here is fascinating. Surely the first question should be, how did you escape? They were locked securely in the jail, and the jail was still locked when they were sent for. They were placed under guard, and the guards were still there when they were sent for. How did you escape? But the high priest is so consumed by his jealousy of them that this miracle is not mentioned at all. And instead, the first thing that he says is, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Luke was exactly right when he began this account by writing, the high priest and his associates, the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. There's no interest in determining whether the apostles' teaching is true or false. The Sadducees are simply jealous for their religious authority to be preserved. And then the high priest levels his accusation against them. You are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, remember where this is happening, this uh, trial setting. The apostles are standing in the very place where Jesus stood only months earlier, in front of the very same group of men who condemned him using false witnesses. They need no convincing that they're guilty of this man's blood. The high priest's words are all jealousy and anger and guilt. And the apostles respond, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as ruler and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. There it is. There's the message of the gospel in a nutshell. Now, whatever our approach to witnessing, there's going to come a time when we need to be able to explain the good news. Why did Jesus go to the cross? What effect does his death have? And why is the resurrection so important? If we're ever going to share our faith with anyone, we have to be able to talk about the cross. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Love. Jesus loves us, but there's a problem. Our relationship with him is broken by sin. Sin is the Bible's word for all that we've done wrong and thought wrong and said wrong and for all of the good that we could have done but have chosen not to do. Sin creates a barrier between us and a holy God. And there's a price to be paid for sin. God cannot simply forget about it. If we were in a road accident and our car was wrecked, we could forgive the other driver, but there would still be a price to be paid in order to get the car mended. And sin, the rejection and destruction of all that is good in creation, is so serious that the price is death. But God, in his love for us, each one of us, 
paid the price himself by dying in our place on the cross. What effect does his death have? It makes it possible for us to receive his forgiveness. We can be reconciled with him. We can experience freedom from sin and guilt and victory over the powers of evil. It enables us to enter into a new life, this salvation life. And to do the good works God had intended for us to do, it brings healing, and so on, and so on, and so on. The good news resulting from what God has done through Jesus connects with people in so many different ways. We don't need to remember all of that every time. We just need to be asking, what is God's good news for this person who I'm talking to at this time? And why is the resurrection important? Proof. It is the evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, that his death on the cross did defeat death, that victory over sin and even over death is possible. And it's the demonstration that he will do for us and for others what he promised to do. Okay, one last thing about witness to say in verse 33. When they had heard this, the Sanhedrin were furious and wanted to put them to death. So here's the bad news, folks. No matter how well you communicate the good news of Jesus to another person, they will not necessarily respond by putting their faith in him. In the passage that Carol read for us earlier from Mark chapter 4, the famous parable of the seed and the sower, Jesus indicates that the majority of the responses to our sharing of the good news are not ultimately going to prove fruitful. In that parable, he gives us four responses to the gospel. In some cases, Satan will come and snatch away the words as soon as they're spoken. In other cases, it will seem that there's a positive response, that, that faith springs up quickly, but it won't last. In other cases, what seems initially to be a fruitful response will be choked out over time by the appeal of other ways of living, easier ways than obedience to Jesus. And it's only in a minority of cases, Jesus says, that our witness will find good soil and produce a lasting crop. It's surprising that, isn't it? Surely we would imagine God's word would always produce an abundant crop. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus is telling us to be prepared for a variety of unexpected responses. Not everyone will prove to be good soil for the gospel. Even some of those who appear to be will not be. Even some of those who begin well and perhaps go on in the faith for a long time will not ultimately prove to be good soil for the gospel. And yet there will be much fruit. It's amazing the fruit that the Lord produces through us when we have the courage to put the challenge to follow Jesus to others. Well, the Sanhedrin are not good soil. In contrast to the apostles who are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Sanhedrin are filled with rage, and that results in murderous intent. 
please be aware the enemy wants Jesus' witnesses dead. At times you may get the most hostile responses when you share your faith. But the Sanhedrin don't have the authority under Roman rule to have people executed, so we also get a second response. A Pharisee named Gamaliel stands up. Gamaliel is a pragmatist with an eye on public opinion. He speaks not in defense of the apostles, but to prevent the Sanhedrin from making a costly public relations mistake. He gives a couple of examples of failed revolutionaries whose followers have dissipated after their deaths. And he argues that once the leader of a movement dies, their followers soon scatter. Jesus is dead, so there's no need to take action against his disciples. The same will happen to them. Now, even if the principle he outlines is correct, and that's a big if, Gamaliel has missed the point Peter and the apostles have made. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. Unlike these other revolutionaries, Jesus is not dead, but alive and leading the revolutionary movement that bears his name. Gamaliel ends his speech with a principle. You sometimes hear people quote this. Leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Please, friends, don't quote this in support of your arguments. John Stott says, to be sure, in the long run, what is from God will triumph, and what is merely human will not. But in the shorter run, evil plans sometimes succeed, while good ones, conceived in accordance with the will of God, sometimes fail. So the Gamaliel principle is not a reliable index as to what is from God and what is not. Gamaliel's arguments are plausible and pragmatic. He persuades even the furious members of the Sanhedrin. And many people give this kind of response, I think, when we speak to them about faith. Oh, well, if God is good, everything will be okay. It seems as if they're weighing their options. It seems perfectly reasonable, their response, but actually it is just rejection in a clever disguise, pragmatic dismissal. Look at what actually happens. Supposedly, the Sanhedrin are open to the possibility that the apostles' teaching might be from God. That's what Gamaliel said. But they have them flogged, and then they order them not to speak in the name of Jesus again pragmatic dismissal. In polite Canadian society, it seems I get this kind of response more than any other when I share my faith. But whatever response we get, the apostles show us how we should react. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Friends, whatever response we get when we share our faith, we can celebrate. 
No conversation about Jesus is ever wasted. Let me say that again. No conversation about Jesus is ever wasted, including those ones that you think back to and you say, oh, what did I say? Why did I say that? Or why could I not think of the answer? No conversation about Jesus is ever wasted. And we can always redouble our efforts as witnesses, as the apostles did. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.